So tonight we're going to be in we're going to be in Second Kings chapter eighteen, and we were here Tuesday night, and we went through two chapters, chapter seventeen and eighteen. And in chapter 17, it was the end of the northern kingdom. Now, Israel's been a divided kingdom for almost 200 years since Solomon stepped into eternity. And it's really the the climatic ending of those 10 tribes of the north. And as they come to their end, the focus will shift for the next 100 years plus to the southern kingdom. So remember, Solomon died. The kingdom of Israel, 922 B.C., becomes separated. 10 tribes in the north, Judah and Benjamin together in the south. And about 40 kings total during this time. The northern kingdom was taken away in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And then the southern kingdom, 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. The northern kingdom's tribes never came back. The southern tribes did after 70 years in fulfillment of many prophecies, including that which was spoken by Jeremiah to Daniel. But before we look at the great king Hezekiah in chapter 18, I'm just going to read to you briefly a couple of verses that summarize Hosea the last king of the northern kingdom. And remember, the northern kingdom is easy to follow. There were 19 kings and none were good. You never get lost. They were, they're all bad. The, the best of the, the bad were bad. And, you know, it's Ahab and all those guys. So I just want to reach you about Hosea and his end because we're going to use a little bit of contrasting of Hosea, the last king of the north, with Hezekiah, the great king in the south because they had parallel reigns for about a few years. And so I just want to draw this comparison. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, so this is chapter 17 in case you want to know, but I'm just going to read it. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Ahaz was Hezekiah's dad. Hosea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned nine years. Not a long time, nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. That's an interesting detail. Shalamanser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea, for that is, he had, Hosea had sent messengers to, to the king of Egypt and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had year by year. And therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now, Chapter 17 goes on to tell in further detail about the siege of Samaria. It was a seven-year, excuse me, a three-year siege of the capital of the northern kingdom, how they were taken into captivity. The Assyrians would strip you naked. they put the, the, the hooks in your ear, and they'd haul you off to slavery, and they'd displace you, and they'd put you in other areas where they'd displace those people, and they'd take the previous displaced people and bring them to your area so no one could ever settle in and be comfortable with where they'd been relocated, and ultimately they'd be dependent upon the Assyrian government to watch over them and to be their master and to pledge loyalty to Assyria. That was part of their strategy. They were a great world power, the Assyrians, and that's what they did. Now, as we come to chapter 18 in Hezekiah, in a contrast to Hosea, Hezekiah is quite the opposite. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. Now we read of Hezekiah in contrast with Hosea. Now, it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. So that's 54 years, his life. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars. And he cut down the wooden image and broke down in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Neshutan. 
He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, that is the Lord, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him and he prospered whatever he did. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories from the watchtower to the fortified city. So that's the summary of his life. Now, the the rest of this chapter and the chapter behind it and even more behind that is Hezekiah. Hezekiah gets a lot of attention in Chronicles as well as in the book of Isaiah. His encounter with the king of Assyria and the events that happened when the Assyrians besieged Jerusalem is recorded for us three different times. It's almost like the Gospels, right? Like in the Synoptic Gospels, you'll get a story three times with three different perspectives from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And this, the story that follows this, which we'll get into more than, well, certainly be related to next week's topical, it was the siege of Jerusalem that happened and how he persevered through that siege and God delivered him in it. Hezekiah this, this verse 4 where it says, excuse me, verse 3, where it says he, he, did, he did according to all that his father David had done. Now, 19 kings in the north, Hosea is the last one. We were told that he did evil, but not as much evil as all that came before him. So listen to this, pay attention. Hosea was the best of the worst. Did you catch that? Hosea was the best of the worst. Hezekiah, he's the 13th king. You know, we had Friday the 13th yesterday, so lucky 13, come on down. Hezekiah on lucky 13. He's the 13th king of Judah. Now, there's 20 in Judah, but they, they go through them pretty fast. The last four kings of Judah, like bang, 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 during the Babylonian siege and whatnot. But he's number 13 in the list of 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And of the 12 that came before him, it never says what it says about him. It says that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, they did not remove the high places, or like his dad, who was very evil that we studied last week, he, he built high places. He made things worse. He did whatever he wanted under every green tree, emphasized all these things, all that kind of stuff. So his dad was pretty much the worst of the kings of Judah. So king number 12 in Judah, the worst. So there was a time when Ahaz was king and Hosea was king. So he had the worst of, of the kings of Judah with the best of the bad kings of Israel co-reigning and at, really at war against each other. But Hosea was the end. So Hezekiah, because it says that he did all that his father David did. So now we're going 200 years back to King David. So 12 kings did right, didn't do right like his dad did evil, but there's 12 kings, 200 years, and they did right, but they did, nonetheless, they did not remove the high places. And those are the places of self-governed worship, how people chose to worship and do whatever they wanted to do, and it was unacceptable to God, and when you study it in detail, it's just like, it was not acceptable to God, but it was more like the, the personal sins that people chose to do, and the political kings, they would do good things, were like, you know what, I'm not gonna come to your house and police you in your backyard. But Hezekiah's like, well, I am. I am. I'm going to do that. I'm going to remove those high places. And if you want to have a coup or vote me out of office or anything like that, I'm in power right now. And I'm 25 years of age. And I know what I'm going to do. And I'm going to get things done. And I'm going to deal with this. So he did what no one else. Think about this. 200 years is a long time. 
That's like from, you know, the War of Independence, you know, 1776, 82, 83, George Washington, 200 years, the bicentennial. You remember that? You know, 1976, 200 years, add the change we got. 200 years is a long time. It's a long time to wait for a human being, male or female, to rise up and just say, you know, I'm going to break the cycle of incompleteness here. I'm not just going to settle for doing what's right, but not dealing with this. I am going to find another gear, and I'm going to do more than anyone's done before me. And in the case of Hezekiah, it is ironic because he's the best of the, of the good. and At the same time, Hosea is the best of the worst in the north. I just find that ironic. And a couple of things they had in common comparatively because they are back-to-back and they are comparative in the text overall. Hosea was made a vassal state of the great Assyrian Empire, and he got the idea that Egypt, Pharaoh, would be a better master than the Assyrians. And so he sought to do a deal with Egypt to deliver him and fight for him, pay them money, deliver me from the Assyrians. We've had enough of the Assyrians. And that plan did not work for him. You know, king of Assyria sacked him, took three years. Man, three years got him just angrier and took them all away, and that was the end of that. Well, interestingly enough, we're told from other stuff in the scriptures that mainly Isaiah, who was also contemporary of these guys, like I mentioned Saturday, that Hezekiah thought to make a deal with Egypt. He sought to make a deal with Egypt as well, and it didn't work for him. That's actually part of the text in chapter 18 later on. When the Assyrians besieged Samaria, Hezekiah would have been aware of it, knowing that that was probably coming his way because they're just going to come south and do the same thing to him. And in fact, the Assyrians came in to besiege Hezekiah as well. So the commonalities of Hosea and Hezekiah is they reigned at the same time, the best of the worst and the best of the best. They both sought deliverance through Egypt to no avail. They both sold off, sold off everything they had to appease the Assyrians to no, to no avail to stop what Assyria is going to do. They both were besieged by the Assyrians. One was destroyed, the other was not, and was delivered. That's the important element to the overall panoramic story of these two men contrasted. One made really bad choices and one made really good choices. They both made some bad decisions in the sense of trusting in Egypt, They both did the best they could under difficult circumstances. Give the Assyrians all your money, all your wealth. Hezekiah did the same thing. He made the best decision out of choices that were all bad decisions. We talked about that Tuesday night. But in the end, Hosea disappears in the annuals of history to be nobody. And Hezekiah becomes one of the greatest heroes that we have in the entire Bible. Which reminds us that choices add up. They create a compound effect, and and macro big choices lead to good micro choices, and they build a life of of faith or unbelief, and they build a legacy of really good things for eternity or really bad things for eternity when you leave this brief journey we call life. Hezekiah is a superhero in the Bible because that distinction in verse 3 that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father David did. He goes all the way back to David. When you're compared to David favorably, and it doesn't say, yet he did not remove the high places, it's, it's incredible. And so we look at Hezekiah tonight. 
Someone heard the study on Tuesday night, and they said that the Lord, as they were listening to it, the Lord gave them the word all in. That was the whole thing about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was all in. And these people that followed up with me from hearing the message, they said, hey, we listened to that setting. We decided that's the word from the Lord for us this year. We're going to be all in like Hezekiah was all in because he was all in like no kings of 12 before him or any of the 19 in the north that came over, you know, before him. Over 40, you know, like over 30 kings and none had done what he had done. And it's a reminder to us that regardless of what's going on in our exterior environment, geopolitically, even in our family environment, that we all have a self-determination with the Lord to decide what we're going to do with our life. Are we going to be the best of the worst? Are we going to be average for the good? Are we going to be best of the best? And it doesn't matter what the Assyrians are doing, the king of Egypt or anything else. It's us. It's us. And the sooner we accept responsibility for our behavior, our attitudes, our actions, and our choices, the better off it is for us to be super fruitful for the kingdom and step into eternity with a great legacy. Once we really accept, you know, we always say the sign of adulthood is when you accept responsibility for your actions, right? That's when you know little boys have really grown up and become men, when they actually accept full responsibility for their actions. And once you do, as a male or a female, you're liberated to just flourish with the Lord with whatever God has for you from here to eternity. And Hezekiah was all in, and he flourished. He was the best of the best. And I think I can speak for most of us tonight. When we think about what we want to do with our lives in 2023, I think in principle, we certainly want to be the best of the best before the Lord. I don't want to, we're not here on Saturday night in the rain to be average for the Lord. We want to be the best of the best. And we're certainly not here to be the best of the worst. We're here to be the best of the best. So let's look at three things. There's actually quite, there's more than three. There's about eight plus in this, these verses we read, verses one, three. But three things I want to really focus on here tonight for our application. First point, number one, he removed the things that needed to be removed. So as it says he did all the Lord did, it starts with what would seem to be a negative. He's identified by what he would not associate with. He's identified by what he would not tolerate, kind of like David and Goliath. David is really introduced to us by what he would not tolerate. He would not tolerate a blasphemous giant 40 days in a row coming out and cursing the armies of God and the living God. He would have none of it, and he went right after that giant in total faith, certain of victory. David is really introduced to us by what he would not tolerate. Who is this giant to blaspheme against the Lord? Take me to the king. I'll fight him. I don't need Saul's armor either, man. This guy, he's coming down. That is unacceptable in the land of God's people of covenant. And we'll have none of it. So really, David himself was identified, introduced to us in 1 Samuel chapter 17, by what he would not tolerate. And I said not just too long ago, just a month or two ago, I want to be identified by what I'm for as opposed to what I'm against. And I think we would say yes and amen, right? Like, I'm for life. I'm for people being happy. I'm for good choices. You know, I'm for the fear of the Lord. I'm for obedience to the scriptures, living by faith. But nonetheless, when you're for those things, inevitably, because you're for light, there's darkness. And when you stand for the light, you become identified by what you are against. Because darkness is darkness. Moral darkness is moral darkness. And the Bible in Genesis 1 draws the distinction between physical light and darkness in the very first chapter. And John chapter 1 in the the Gospel of John draws the distinction between moral light and moral darkness in the very first chapter following the principle of Genesis. And Jesus is the light of men. 
Then it goes on to say in John that men love darkness, or it says that men wouldn't come to light because they love darkness. So we know when a person commits their life to Christ, they're a new creation. And in Adam, all sin and die, but in the second Adam, we're all made to life. And because we're a new creation and we pass from death to life, there is going to be an identity of life which is a reproof of death. And we're going to be in the light, and the light shines in darkness, and as Jesus even said, the darkness doesn't like it. Because men love darkness, they don't come to the light. That's what Jesus said, morally. So we realize, as the Church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years on planet Earth, from the book of Acts, chapter 1, chapter 2, day of Pentecost, to this day, though the Church does many wonderful things, universal church throughout human history, many wonderful things. The church does so much good. Whatever anyone would want to accuse the church of Jesus Christ for things that are not good, they can't say that the word of God's not good to bring good on humanity. People can misrepresent the word of God, and they can say that, but they can't say that God's not good in his word, and that God doesn't have a good plan from his word. And lots of good women and men for 2,000 years have done really good things for the human experience. My wife's reading a book about that. I can never get his name right. Like is Jonadiah Hudson, you know, the, the guy that went to Burma back in the day. But the women were so low in society at that time that when this is, you know, modern India, that area, that when their husbands died, they were burned alive on the funeral pyre for their husbands. The, the, the society refused to recognize the identity of the woman or the rights of the woman and all those things. But the gospel of Jesus Christ elevates women. For in Christ, there's neither male nor female. And women are elevated. And yet the irony of people who attack the church, they would say the church suppresses women. God liberates women to be fully woman. The way he made Eve in the garden before sin. And all of her beauty. And we're told in the New Testament what kind of women women are to be whose daughters you are, like Sarah. We're told that. For 2,000 years, the church has made the world a better place for women, wherever the gospel has been received. It's made the world a better place for the underprivileged. It's made the world a better place for orphans and widows and all those things. We've, we've, we, we established education in the colonies. The church did that. Not the world, not the secular humanists, not the Marxists. The church did. We built hospitals. We saved people. That's what the church does. So you see, when we think about... Um, our identity and all the good we do, we do do good. But, but the devil's the master of taking that which is good and making it look evil and taking that which is evil and making it look good because he's the father of lies. So when you, you would think it's good that this is the definition of gender, there's a definition of marriage, there's a definition of life and all these things, and it's good and it's true, just, and noble and praiseworthy according to God's word, you would think society would take that. But as I've mentioned, we've learned in the human experience that you go from tolerating evil to accepting the evil to enjoying evil to participating in evil. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that it's not just doing evil that condemns people to hell. It's being in agreement with what is evil. So we have to be identified by what we're against because of what we're for. And because we're for life, and we're for women, and we're for children, and we're for the innocent, and we're for justice and all these things, and Christ is Lord of our lives and Lord of his church, his blood, his resurrection, his baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's who we are. An absolute truth from Genesis to Revelation. So we are for these things, which the world perceives often when they want to live in darkness, that we're against things that are contrary to the Lord. 
Aren't you glad that he laid down his life for sinners and doesn't wink with sinners and shuffle the feet and do it with them? I mean, aren't you glad that, that he's for the widow and he's for the orphan? And that he's for Down syndrome kids and he's for physically handicapped and mentally challenged? Aren't you glad he's for, for everybody on planet Earth? Aren't you glad he doesn't throw anyone under the bus? I sure am. Because that, that liberates us to look at every life and know it's, it all has value. And if God determines a life is done, that's it for him to determine, not me. See, and the reason in our country that politicians cannot consider infanticide in the womb infanticide is because they've accepted it for so long, they've, they've seared their conscience. And so we're stunned that hundreds of congressmen and women can come out and say that even if the baby's born alive, surviving abortion, it should still be killed. That's infanticide. That's emphasized by any rational person's mind. See, if a person doesn't think it's emphasized in the womb, okay, you don't think it's a baby. But now that it's out of the womb, you know, that, people go, that's called murder. But you don't want to call it that. And see, how can you do that? Because people ask me, how can 200 plus politicians not think that that's emphasized? See, Brian Broderson this week said he compared these politicians to the Nazis and what they did at, at uh, you know, Auschwitz and all these other places. This is how it works. I just read Romans 1 today in my devotion. Devotion and God remember how it works. You sear your conscience on something that's light and you, you, you accept darkness. Then you can't discern, you, you keep going down a slippery slope. So if you don't accept it as a human being in the womb, you no longer, you've already seared your conscience that it's not a human being outside the womb. So now we have over 200 politicians that run our, our federal government saying that that's not a human being worth living outside the womb if it survives an attempted abortion. That's, that's murder. That's genocide. It's emphasized on a genocidal, if that's such a word, level. That's no different than the Germans determining that a Jew is not worth living. And once you determine, determine that a Jew is not worth living, then you can execute every Jew. And you can put them on trains. You can take their wealth. You can rape them. You can murder them. You, you can shoot them in cold blood. Because you've determined that all Jews are not worth living. And you can do the same with Romanian gypsies and other people you don't like on, in Europe in 1939 to 1944. That's what you do. See, this is what societies have done for a long time. The Japanese did it to Koreans when they occupied Korea, you know, pre-World War, after World War I, before World War II. This, this is what the Chinese have done to each other. This is, this is what Mongols did. This is what Russians did to Tartars, you know, the Turks. And, this is human history. Once you determine that a certain people group is not worth living, you have no problem justifying genocide against them. Thus, the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda in the 90s. And this is why we need to know what we're against. You need to know through faith in Jesus Christ, what he's against. So you're against it too, in Jesus' name. We need to know what we're against. And we need to be willing to stand for what we're against. And if the world wants to attack us for it, then so be it. But go to your grave as a woman of conviction and character and a man of conviction and character and know exactly what you stand for so people know what you stand against. These are times that test men and women's souls. Hezekiah knew the Assyrians were coming and they were coming to take everything. Their house of worship, their gold, their wives, their children, their property, their vineyards, everything. They were coming to rape their women and just plunder them. And he could see it on the horizon. 
And it was a desperate time, and he took his stand. Hey, before those guys show up and threaten us everything, I'm going to let everyone know, under the God of Israel, Jehovah Almighty God, what we are against. And he's against high places, and he's against idolatry, and he's against emphasis, and he's against all these things, and I'm putting an end to it right now. This is the mark of my reign. This is who I am as the king of Judah in the line of David, the line that Jesus Christ is going to come through. This is who I am. In the year of our Lord, B.C., 725 B.C., this is who I am. And this silly bronze serpent we've been worshiping for 600 years, you people, that serpent we looked upon our forefathers 600 years ago to be healed from this sin, it's a type of Christ, and you guys worship it like a relic. I'm going to destroy it because it's idolatry. Because you trust in the serpent that you look at rather than the God who wants you to look at him. And Jesus would say years later, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this bronze serpent, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. That serpent's a type of Christ. We don't worship a relic Christ or an idol Christ. We worship the living God by faith, through the eyes of faith. It's like when Hezekiah destroyed the serpent, he was purifying the worship of Jesus Christ in his generation. We won't have any of this. The serpent represented Christ, and you're worshiping the serpent, not the Messiah that's promised to us in the line of David. We need to know what we're against. If we're going to be all in with the Lord, if we're going to be great for the Lord for all eternity, not, not what the people outside these doors think of us, that's, that's for another day. What they think is your memorial, that's for another day. What matters is when we stand before the Lord, what he thinks of us. When the Holy Spirit summarizes our life before the throne of God, will he say he was like his father, he did right like his, he did right like his father David, and he did in all the things like his father David. Man, that's what we want to hear when we stand before the throne. And people we love have been in this church for 17 and a half years, and many of them have already gone on to stand before the throne. We have to see eternity. And I look at this text and I think, man, I got only so much time to be identified in a good way with what I stand for, which indicates what I also stand against. And if the world hates me for it, then so be it. This is not my home. My home is in the glory of the kingdom. And everything's a test here to make us ready for there. That's why we're told the fear of man is a snare, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, he trusted the Lord is the second point. It says in verse 5, he trusted in the Lord. Now, we, we hear this verse. It's pretty, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. Trust in the Lord. You know, like, uh, he'll keep the imperfect peace of his mind to stay upon thee because he trusts in the Lord. That's what Hezekiah said at the same time this was going on for uh, Habakkuk. Or, excuse me, that's what Isaiah said the same time this was going on for Hezekiah. He said that, that famous verse from Isaiah. He'll keep the imperfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because they trust in the Lord. So we're told Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. Okay, so let's think about this trust in the Lord. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ, in fulfilling his earthly ministry, always did those things that pleased the Father, and he trusted in the Father in all that he did, even on the cross. There's prophetic verses about that in the Old Testament. So when we say that we're trusting in the Lord, because Hezekiah trusts in the Lord, he removed these things, and he tr- it's a summary. He trusted in the Lord, and it says he held fast to the Lord. So he was dependent upon the Lord. And so when we say, look at our lives, the church of Jesus Christ, 
How, like, what, what, was he, what does it mean he trusts in the Lord, though? Well, we tend to think he trusted in the person and the character of God. So he trusted that God's, God's good. So whatever happens in my life, God's good. Sort of like Job when he lost everything. He's like, no, the Lord's good. He's given, he's taken, the Lord's good. God is good. He trusted in the character of the Lord that God was good. The person of the Lord is character, that God is good. God is light, and him is no moral darkness at all. He certainly trusted in God's word. It says here that he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. He obeyed the word of God. The law of God, he obeyed it. He read it. He obeyed it. The Ten Commandments and the subdivisions of the Ten Commandments, obvious what's right, what's wrong, the common sense of right and wrong, like from the book of Proverbs. He read this stuff. He read it. He believed it. It shaped his thinking, his worldview, his actions, his, his responses, and he believed it. He, when, he, when he read the law of God, Exodus, Deuteronomy, when he read, you shall rise up and speak of the Lord to your children, and he read these things, and you'll talk about me in the day when you got in the field, when he read these things, when he read how we're to act in moral law with the Lord, how we're to act in moral law with our neighbors, how we're to act in religious law with how God's approach, how he's not approached. You don't read about him trying to go in the temple and make himself to be something special like Uzziah did that we saw last week. You don't read about that. The word of God, this is very important. Because we want to trust in the Lord. I want to trust in the Lord. Do you want to trust in the Lord? Like we have faith that, you know, we're saved by faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence is not yet seen. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith and trust are very similar. But, but trusting is really like God's got this. So I was thinking about trusting and to give us an idea what trusting feels like for us. Well, for one in the ministry, I know this. When I was on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa years ago with the late, great Pastor Chuck Smith, a lot of people trusted Pastor Chuck. I mean, if you can't trust Pastor Chuck, who are you going to trust? Again, 9-11, all those thousands of people came to church, and when Chuck got up and said, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. Before Y2K and Chuck got up and said, the electricity's not even going to flicker, hey, that put a lot of people at ease because remember how scared we were in December of 99, the whole world could end with Y2K when the computer, see what they're going to do. People, when they had a difficult time, in times when the, when the war began, when 9-11, all that happened, there was such a power surge of people coming to the church at Calvary Costa Mesa because they trusted Pastor Chuck. Even in the times of simplicity and consistency, People trusted Pastor Chuck to teach the Bible verse by verse on Sunday night. They trusted him to give a message on Sunday that was true, and they could apply it to their life, and they trusted him that way. I know this because I watched thousands and thousands of people come and go week after week after week, month after month after month, year after year, and I would pray with them after service up front, and I could reaffirm what they heard to trust in that. They trusted Pastor Chuck to make it about the Lord Jesus Christ, not himself. So there was a minister they trusted. People trusted Billy Graham. Every president, when he began his ministry from the time he upset Truman by praying in the front yard of the, the, the White House lawn, every president trusted Billy Graham. Every president wanted Billy Graham in the room when they're declaring war or doing this or doing that. Democrat, Republican, Catholic, Protestant, whatever. They all wanted Billy Graham there because they trusted Billy Graham. 
Billy Graham was so trusted by America that many people thought he could have run for president and easily won the election, Republican or Democrat. I'm flying in a few weeks. When I finish Second Kings, I'm going to visit the grandkids in Florida. I'm going to get on a plane at 1130 at night at LAX, and I'm trusting someone I don't even know to fly that plane at 33,000 feet to get me from LAX to Atlanta, and I'm trusting another pilot to get me on that puddle jumper to Melbourne, Florida, and I'm trusting him. I don't know her name, his name. I don't know if, they're, if they were educated as, as equally, are all pilots equally educated? I don't know. But I'm trusting them that they're going to do what they do, and I can trust them in it, and I'm trusting the Lord's over them. And if it's my time, it's my time. If it's not my, it's not. I don't worry. I, I never worry about who the pilot is. Like, hey, how's it going, you know, when I walk on? I trust the pilot. When you have a really bad toothache and you're excruciating pain, because you generally don't go to the dentist until you are, well, most, some people, you should, other than that, but, you know, when you have a screaming toothache, it, it doesn't, like, you're going to trust whoever's doing your tooth. You're like, just relieve the pain. When I had COVID and I was in emergency room at Kaiser back in August, the nurse came in. I, I, I trusted her to do this, the IV. I trusted when she's putting the fluids in the IV. What, I trusted her. She could have been poisoning me. It could have been the end of Joy Brand. could have been a great conspiracy to kill Joy Brand, you know? But I trusted this woman I've never met before that what she's putting in me is going to make me better. I trusted her. I trust Dr. Chen, my doctor, for years. I, I do. I, tr I truly trust him. When we go out to eat at a restaurant, I got food at uh, oh, Las Barcas this week and Faux Noodle, okay? I went two different places. We got stuff for my wife. I got soup and stuff. I don't know who's making the food, but I trusted them that I'm not going to get food poisoning. And by the way, if you work in the restaurant business just once, you'll realize that's a pretty big trust. Because when I worked at the Sheraton, we had a convention where everyone got sick. And I learned how they handle food, you know, food handling and all that. <laughs> But when I picked up Jennifer's soup from Las Barcas, her tortilla soup and her faux noodle the next night, I trusted these people behind there that made the food that is not going to poison us and kill us. How much more should we trust the Lord? See, we demonstrate so much trust that people are going to honor the red lights at a, you know, an intersection of four streets. We trust all these things as we go about our day. We trust this. We trust that. I, I trust law enforcement. I trust these things. All things where fallen men and women are maybe doing their best or not their best to fulfill what they're, they're doing it with their life. And it affects my life. How much more should we trust in the Lord? But it's easier to trust in men and women who we see and maybe we believe their credibility or their credentials or their resume. But no one has a better resume than the Lord, obviously. He says all the time, put me to the test. I'll show you that I'm the Lord. I tell you the future before it happens. I do this. I do that. And we can trust in the Lord. So Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. It was, he became king at 25. So between the time he graduated high school, if you will, at 17 or 18, and went through his collegiate years, watching his dad destroy everything and undo all the good stuff his grandfather Jotham had done, there's no, there's, there's no explanation for it. His dad was the worst, and he chose to be the best. He chose to be the best after his dad was the worst. In the hardest of times, he was all in. He, he was identified by the way removed because of what he believed. And then he trusted the Lord and he showed his belief by how he trusted the Lord. And when Sennacherib and the Assyrians came against him and laid siege to Jerusalem, he took their threats. He took their threats and he laid it out before the Lord. 
Like when someone writes you a very mean letter or an angry letter, when you're in ministry, you get them fairly often. <laughs> one time at Big Calvary, the one time Chuck had me fill in for him. And it's never a good thing that you only fill in once, but it's beyond the point. So he had me fill in for him once, one time on a Sunday night. And I said something about the Vietnam War that really upset a lot of people. I just kind of said, like, you know, I mean, it was, the night was a total disaster. But anyways, the hate mail came in, and they gave it to Chuck. Now, I'll never forget what he said. Pastor Chuck called me in his office. He said, hey, Joe and all. And, you know, because you never get called in to say good morning. Like, you get called in his office because something happened. So he hands me what he got. And he said, uh, these are yours and all. I, I have my own. <laughs> That's what he said. These are yours. I have mine. <laughs> like, he's like, whatever you want to do with it, it's your business. That's between you and the congregation when they listen to you. These are yours. I have mine. And I used to see these things come in. You'd see them come in on the fax machine, all this crazy stuff against Pastor Chuck. You walk by like, oh, my goodness, stuff comes in every day. Hezekiah trusts in the Lord, like Pastor Chuck, but more so, or equal. Who knows? But I'm sure Chuck did what I learned to do, because the famous 29-page letter someone wrote me one time where they critiqued everything about this church, this building, the congregation, how I, I wore my hair, the clothes I wore, everything, 29 pages. Ah, tw- you know, my, my wife says, who writes a 29-page letter? I said, someone is really upset. <laughs> 29 pages. I wish I would have kept it, but I, I laid it out before the Lord. And, you know, page 28 had some good stuff. And we've applied it to the church ever since. Page 28 had some good stuff. So it's a good thing I didn't quit after page 27, right? <laughs> page 28 had good stuff. The rest was like, you know, I can't do much with my hair. You know, as you can tell, for three years, we're still trying to figure this out. Um, but when I received things like that in ministry, or criticism and stuff like that, I have laid it before the Lord. And you you trust in the Lord. So Hezekiah laid it before the Lord. He took the threats against him and he laid it before the Lord. With Isaiah a part of it all. And God gave him a word through Isaiah that God would deliver him. And I go back to when when he had to make really bad choices. The best choice that he had when Sennacherib was besieging was to strip the temple of all of its gold and everything and give it to him and try and appease him. He did that. But unlike his predecessors who did the same thing, the gold is not, there's nothing special about the gold. The heart is what's special. A heart that's all in with the Lord is worth way more than the gold of the temple. And even Jesus himself said this in Matthew 23. He says, what's more important, the gold on the altar or the altar what it represents? Like, it's not about the exterior, it's about the interior. So when Hezekiah decided to strip the gold and give it to the king of Assyria, it's a lot different than the king of Samaria giving his gold. Because the king of Samaria is giving his gold with unbelief and no faith in the Lord. Hezekiah is doing the best he can, all in with the Lord, the best decision of all the bad choices that he can make on behalf of the people of the Lord for the Lord. And I said this on Tuesday night, when you face a day where your best decision is a really bad one, when you have four options and the best decision is a really bad one, may your heart be all in trusting the Lord on that day. On that day when your best decision is a really bad choice of all the, it's the least bad of all the bad choices. On that day when you have to make that decision, because those days exist, may you be found trusting the Lord, all in with the Lord like Hezekiah. That's what it means to trust in the Lord. 
We trust in all these other things. He's got it. When we say, you know, the Lord's got this. The Lord's got this. There's a plan and it's the Lord's got this. That's trust in the Lord. And finally, the third thing we see is it says in verse 7 that the Lord was with him and he prospered wherever he went. I like this. This is happy. I want to prosper. Given a choice, I prefer to prosper as opposed to flounder. You know, like given a choice. If you say, hey, Joey, what, what would you like to be? Would you want to be fruitful and prosper in your life in your 60s? Or do you want to like fail and flounder? I'd be like, well, of course, I want to be fruitful and prosper. Don't we all? We want to prosper with the Lord. For us in our English language, when we say prosper, we think more of wealth, like physical wealth, like, oh, he's prosperous, he owns multiple houses, or he's got money in the bank, or lots of stock market, that's, lots of stock in good stock, you know, in the stock market, stuff like that. But really, all the wealth in the world, if you're sick and have a, a painful illness, like, how much can you enjoy all your houses in Newport if you have, like, a super painful illness that doesn't allow you to enjoy it? That wealth is meaningless. And if, you, if your doctors don't relieve you of pain, what good is your temporal wealth with all these material things when you can't enjoy it because you can't eat food because you've got severe Crohn's or something? You know, like, it, prosperity is, is a very broad concept. Health, yes. Uh, comforts, yes. Healthy relationships. What, what good is prospering? You've got all the money in the world if, if your ex-wife hates you and your kids don't talk to you. You know, like, what, what good is that? Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, Prospering, we have to get past some initial thoughts about prospering, what that really looks like. The Lord was with him, and he prospered wherever he went. Now, we're told in Psalm 1, when David wrote Psalm 1, talked about, Blessed is the man who delights himself in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. It says that he prospers in whatever he does. So here we're told that Hezekiah prospered wherever he went, the promise is made, whoever meditates on the word of God prospers in whatever they do. Then we look at, for example, the life of Joseph in the Old Testament when he was in Egypt. It said that the Lord was with him and he prospered in, in all that he did. He prospered in all that he did. So let's think about this because we're all in with the Lord. We're identified by what we remove, what we, what we, what we, what we won't tolerate. Because of what we stand for in the light, we have to stand against the darkness. And we, do, we are identified by what we remove and what we won't tolerate. Then here Hezekiah is identified by his trust in the Lord. And we've covered that. But here he prospered in whatever he, he went, wherever he went. So let's think about the, the prosperity now as would apply to Hezekiah. Well, there's no prosperity like peace with God, right? I mean, peace with God is everything. Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives. The Holy Spirit through Paul says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He'll keep the imperfect peace whose mind, her mind is stayed upon the Lord because they trust in thee. Of all the things that you can prosper with is peace in your very being of who you are. Peace with God. That's what faith in Jesus Christ brings us above all else. Peace with God. That we can have peace in the eye of the storm no matter what's going on for the rest of our life. He gives us the peace that surpasses understanding and it guards our hearts and minds. Be anxious for nothing, but cast all your cares upon him and let the peace of God rule in your heart. He gives us peace. So when we think about prospering, God gives us peace in the human experience. We think about being triune in our nature, that we are spirit, mind, and body. So if we're prospering, our spiritual woman, our spiritual man, we're being built up in our faith, we're at peace with God, our, our spirit. We have a, a peace in our spirit with the Holy Spirit. We're not grieving the spirit or quenching the spirit. We're one with the Holy Spirit, and we're responding to the spirit. 
So our spiritual woman, our spiritual man that transcends time, space, and matter, we're good with the Lord. So we have peace with the Lord in our general personhood. Then we have our spirits good with the Lord when we're walk, walking in the spirit. And our, 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 our spiritual woman, our spiritual man, spirit, mind, and body, our mind, our conscience, our thoughts are good. They're good thoughts, thinking good thoughts to the Lord. Our mind is set upon godly things. He, his, the word of God governed Hezekiah's mind. And you fill your mind with the scriptures. And the scriptures shape your thinking that you can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It shapes our worldview. It lets us know right, wrong, true, false, yes, no, stand, stand against. That's the scriptures, that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we, our mind is, is being renewed daily by the washing of water, by his word, we're told. And so we take in knowledge, we take in understanding in all this human experience with our skills and our trades and what we do to provide for our families and how God has us his purpose in our life. We grow in the knowledge of those things we do and become more, become more skillful at the trades and the things we're called to do. And we have Christ over it. We do all things as unto the Lord. We do all things in pursuit of excellence. We do all things uh, to, to his glory and, and, and better and better because it's always forward, onward, and upward with the Lord. It's never retraction. It's always expansion. And we're, be, we're believing to become that person we're meant to be as we're doing those things. So our mind is set on the right things. And, and so it's spirit, mind, and body. And then our body is the temple of God. So, you know, it belongs to the Lord. So we take care of our body. How, you know, we, we watched during COVID people that were healthier were generally healthier. And people that were less healthy were generally less healthy. You only get one body. It's going to break down sooner or later. Might as well take really good care of it. I've learned in recent years to take really good care of my body physically. Spirit, mind, and body. So we prosper. We want our health. But it's not just physical health. It's mental health. It's spiritual health. It's our total being. Peace with God. That's what the Lord gives us. That's what Hezekiah had. He prospered. Senecribs out there talking trash, threatening to, to separate everyone from their wealth, their property, destroy everything. He's going to do it. And they were sackcloth and ashes, but they were not moved. They had peace with God. And they held the line. In fact, we're told in the latter part of chapter 18, when the threats were made, no one answered Sennacherib and his people because Hezekiah told them to hold their peace. And they held their peace because they had peace, because they had trust in the Lord, and they were prospering with the Lord. Now, we, we have our person, we have our, our, our relationships Hezekiah, you would have healthy relationships. When, you, when you're prospering with the Lord, you have healthy relationships in your marriage, with your family, with your co-workers, with humanity. When you prosper with the Lord, you prosper with work. You're a good worker. You do a good job. God opens up doors, gives you the job, moves you on from the job. You learn to live within your means. You learn to tithe. You learn to save. You, need, you learn to sow and grow. You learn all that. That's how you prosper. That's what Joseph and Abraham and Isaac and all the great saints of old did and do. And then ultimately, you prosper with your legacy. When we step into eternity, the proof of the value of our life is what our legacy looks like when we're gone to the people that loved us and the people don't even know us. So imagine someone writing a book about your life after you step into eternity. What will that legacy be? Will they see the faith? You see, the real prosperity of your life is the legacy of your life when you've stepped into eternity. Because that's when we know what the real value is. Is there anything worth reading about? And if you simply were a woman of faith and a man of faith, and you were all in with the Lord like Hezekiah, and you're identified by what you're willing to remove that's contrary to the Lord, you're identified that you trusted in the Lord with all your heart, 
and you're identified that he prospered what you did, then that's the life worth living, and that's the life that we're here to see tonight, right? Isn't that why we're here? Because we don't be like James, like people looking in the mirror and forgetting what we see when we walk away. But faith without works is dead. But faith with the power of the Holy Spirit and, and moved by the Holy Spirit produces the works of faith. And that's what we're about. Hezekiah has an amazing life. He truly was all in. He removed what had to be removed. He trusted. He had his trust in the right place. And God was with him and prospered him. So may we be encouraged to be all in, in Jesus' name.